Just in case you're wondering, this is my um, recorder. This is not my um, cheat cheat sheet (laughs) where I plugged into a Dharma talk and just (laughs) say what I'm hearing. You know, all of the modern technology and the recorder on the phone actually gives better quality than the little handheld one that we had. So it saves quite a lot of effort getting things uploaded to the website. So... Saving effort is a good thing. Um, For those who may not be familiar with um, monastics, just a a little bit of context. Um, In the tradition that I come from, before giving a Dharma reflection in a context like this, um, usually what happens is there's a a chanting, and the chanting is... uh, a way of just setting up the stage so that we're both or we're all understanding what's about to happen. So when I, when I do this chanting, it's a, a reminder for me that this is um, a very special context. Everyone is here, your attention is present, and it is my intention to make use of this as an opportunity for understanding, for insight, for growth. You know, I have plenty of opinions about most everything, but this is not the occasion to talk about them. And so in that situation, when you hear this chanting, it's, it's, it's also a reminder for yourself that this may be a little bit different from hanging out on the street corner or in a cafe, you know, over the Internet where you're just talking with friends casually, but to listen in a way where your attention is very well immersed in your own body. And so when your attention is immersed in your own body, you have a a much greater chance of being able to notice resonances and dissonances. And so I would be deeply disappointed if you believed anything that I say. What I'm interested in is, is that you listen with an openness and a reflectiveness to see if there's resonance with what I say. And you can know that because when you feel resonance, your body does this some kind of an, uh, you know, your breath sinks or your chest opens or your spine elongates and the muscles relax. You can feel it. When you have resonance, you can feel it. And so the, the kind of the premise of this is, is that when, when wisdom is, is speaking the truth, we know that. It's not... Anybody owns the wisdom, but there's something inside of us that can resonate with when we we hear something that feels really right. And there'll be times when perhaps you things that don't resonate or you don't you're not following. And with all those kinds of things, it's it's really just very skillful just to let it go. Sometimes there's dissonances, and in the dissonances, there's an opportunity to explore, because the dissonance because can be arising because it really doesn't connect with what you know. And the dissonance can arise because it connects so precisely, it's very uncomfortable to go there. So with dissonance, there's a, there's a, a curiosity that can be ex- developed to see where is this coming from? Is this touching a nerve that actually really needs to be explored? Or is this cutting across what I know to be deeply true? So we have, we have an opportunity for inquiry when we feel like, don't touch that. <laughs> don't go there. I don't want to know about it. So uh, this evening's talk is on craving and the end of craving. And 
it's like, you know, this is pretty much central human territory. In fact, I don't know that as species we can lay claim to this as being unique to us. This is something that everything that is living will experience. The, the, the instinct to want, the desire for safety, the hunger to have uh, pleasure, the wanting to have contact, the desire for ease in our bodies, to be free from pain, to have enough to eat, to be, have our thirst quenched, to, to have our sense of safety being met, to have not being ashamed or publicly humiliated, to be in a position where we can have contact in, in the right kind of way with people that we feel connected with. These hungers are deep-rooted, physical hungers, psychological hungers, social hungers. And in a Buddhist classical way of looking at them, oftentimes the teachings come across, not just come across, they're very explicit, that desire is the root cause of all suffering. And so we hear that, and then we navigate that expression of desire as the root cause of all suffering with some of these cravings that we have and, and, and feel in a conundrum of how do, you, how do you square some of this stuff in terms of it being unwholesome? How is the, the longing to connect with another human being and have genuine interaction. How is that wrong? How is that something that's going to be harmful? How does that hurt us on our path towards liberation? And it's a valid question. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a really important question. I was reminded today um, of a story that I heard a long, long time ago of... Uh, Nisruddin. And Nisruddin is sitting there eating hot chili peppers. And as he's eating these hot chili peppers, he's crying and he's coughing and he's spluttering. And so a friend walks by and sees him in this state of misery, eating one hot pepper after another. He's got a whole pile of hot peppers and he's eating one hot pepper after another, crying and uncomfortable and not being able to breathe properly. And says, Nisruddin, what are you doing? And he says, I'm looking for the sweet one. And the thing about the story, which is so brilliant, is is that on one hand, it, it really encapsulates the nature of craving. That even though craving in itself can lead to an enormous amount of discomfort, there's something inherent in it that continues in spite of itself. So there's an illumination of the first noble truth in that, which is brilliant, because Nasruddin, even though he plays the fool, is actually a completely realized being. So the awakened component of what is engaging in this kind of search, which seems like it's never-ending, and it cannot possibly lead to fulfillment, has a jewel of truth in it, which is asking for exploration and being mined. And that jewel of truth is is that the way to fulfillment isn't only in eradicating the objects of our desire, but coming into a new relationship with wanting. And so in Nasruddin's incessant willingness, persistence, determination to stay with the discomfort, the misery of going through this whole pile of chilies looking for the sweet one, which is not likely going to be there, there's an expression of... of, um, Something that we don't see in classical Theravadan teachings, which is the way in which desire itself can be a vehicle for awakening. Now, 
In this context, what we're dealing with is something which is actually quite edgy because it's very obvious to see how desire is, can be an expression of obsession, can be an expression of addiction, can be an expression of something that takes us out of right relationship with what is healthy and has integrity and is ultimately satisfying. But when we look at when we look at desire as a way of distilling out the grasping and clinging from the hunger to connect, that gives us an opportunity to open up to something which is actually quite a lot bigger and quite a lot vaster. Let me backtrack, see if I can spread some more territory and then come back to this and see where we're at, see if this will connect up. When we're looking at our physical body and we have physical instincts for thirst and for hunger and to relieve ourselves and for sex or for pleasure or for relaxation, some of these things, if we don't have food, if we don't have water, if we don't have a sufficient amount of relaxation, we're not going to be okay. Now, having lived as a celibate, I can say that it's possible to survive without sex, even though for most people they would think it's actually not possible to do that, you know. So our understanding or our impressions of what our basic minimal needs and our actuality of what is possible sometimes are, are, are skewed by our own conditioning rather than by the reality of where we're, what's actually going on. Yeah? So with some of these things, like hunger for food, there's a basic instinct for fulfillment. But when we're eating, we need to eat. How we eat, it can be very different. So we can eat without any conscious awareness of what we're doing or what kind of food we're eating or the impact that it's having on ourselves or with any mindfulness about the impact of the kinds of food that we choose in terms of the environment. Or we can eat with a lot of clarity about all of these things. And when we eat with clarity about all of these things, then it has a different impact on our own system and that it impacts the choices that we make. So it's not possible to do away with eating. It's one of the things that we, we absolutely need. But we have huge choices in how we relate to food and how we relate to the experience of eating itself. Whether eating is a social occupation, whether eating is a distraction, whether eating is an opportunity to... Uh, fulfill our hunger for emotional contact, whether eating is a way of dulling ourselves because we don't want to feel what's going on. Many, many different ways that we can eat, different motivations. So then it's not the eating itself which is a problem. It's our relationship with eating that can be a problem. It doesn't have to be. And fundamental in eating is this sense of wanting to have something that's outside of ourselves and bringing it in. With the idea that if we do that enough, we are going to come to a place of fulfillment. And, you know, if we eat enough food that's the right kind of food, that will work for a time, and then we get hungry again. Can everyone still hear me okay? Yeah? Okay, good. So we can see with our physical hungers that this operates, that there's a longing for something that's outside of ourselves, a focusing of our attention on it, a bringing it towards ourselves, consuming it, allowing that to touch or allowing that to satiate. 
that satiates for a period of time, and then the whole process starts all over again. So our ability to eat food mindfully doesn't eradicate the need for food. Our hunger for safety, our hunger for not being shamed or humiliated or embarrassed, our longing to be seen as sufficient or appropriate or uh, acceptable amongst the people who we value and choose to be in relationship with. Again, we're talking about psychological needs and certainly in our ability to advocate for ourselves and to create safe environments, to be able to create boundaries where certain kinds of behavior are okay and other kinds of behavior are not okay. There's the capacity to be able to have some control over what happens. But it's minimal. You know, somebody will say something and it doesn't feel okay. So I just had the experience today, it was quite a remarkable experience, of I'm, on a, um, on a, 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 I'm with a group of people who are interested in, in having a particular discussion about um, climate change. And uh, I can be compulsive and, and naive, I accept that, but I put something out in this discussion and I felt got absolutely slammed. <laughs> And I didn't just get slammed by a random person. I got slammed by somebody who's got the most clout in terms of, of, of Buddhist hierarchy in the whole group, you know. It was like, you know, being dropped in an acid bath or something where your skin just kind of melts off and you're like, you know, you're splayed, basically. You know, there's just, that's what's happening. You're splayed. And so I thought, well, you know, this is a fabulous opportunity. Here I am, splayed. You know, I didn't have anything. I, there was no malice in my intention. It was certainly, it might have been naive, but not malicious. How do I respond to that? And I thought, well, you know, the way to respond to that for me was not to uh, dissolve into the fact that I felt completely blasted and humiliated in front of everybody, but to actually speak to what, what I had intended to say and the fact that I didn't actually feel heard. So I, I took the criticism, accepted it, it completely acknowledged the fact that I can be naive and turned it around and said, this is actually what I was talking about, you know? And I don't know that I can, I don't have many experiences of that where I feel like I've just been dripped in, a, in an acid bath and I can... <laughs> And I can advocate for myself. Usually I'm, 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 I'm quivering and convulsing on the floor for a while before I can pull it together and, and figure out what has happened and what do I need to do, you know? But something shifted in my ability to just watch. Okay, so this was something that felt unfortunate. My needs for social uh, appearance or, or I don't even know what the right words are were not met. I can process the way that feels, and I can respond. I don't have to be stuck in, in an idea of being limited by the, 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 the blasting that cast me in what I felt was a, a remarkably poor light, you know? And so to be able to shift it like that and to respond in a way where, okay, I'm not asking everybody to agree whether or not my suggestion was valid, I'm just not dissolving into a pool of, of um, victimhood. And it, it, it was a nice feeling. It was a nice feeling. So in this situation for me, what was interesting was is, is that, you know, myself, like everybody else, we have needs not to feel humiliated, embarrassed, shamed, and slammed in front of our peers. You know, it's a pretty common, normal response. And yet sometimes it happens. I had no idea that it was going to happen with that kind of intensity, you know. But when there is the ability to track what's going on and to follow my own internal reactions to it, 
that gives me the capacity to see what I need to see in order to move forward. Okay? So in this situation, I could notice, you know, that feeling of being exposed or that feeling of being vulnerable or that feeling of being uh, publicly humiliated and watch what happened in my body. You know, watch my body contract and pull back. Watch my breathing kind of contract and get shallower. Watch my sense of myself kind of slightly pull away so there was just some slight sense of dissociation. And tracking all of that, I could come back into my body and then feel where I was at and then say, okay, I'm feeling all of this. What's needed? And what's needed is to not be um, daunted by the fact that I just felt all of these things that I felt. So in this situation, the hunger for being seen in a particular light doesn't disconnect me from all of those feelings. It allows me to completely feel them, know that's what I would prefer, and yet respond in a way that is uh, interactive, that is responsive in the situation. So the hunger for food, for water, for basic needs, we're not going to be able to get to a situation where we're not going to have those hungers. The hunger for feeling psychological safety and health. I haven't yet got to the place where we get beyond wanting those things. But certainly I have been able to see over time that the way that I respond when those needs are met or not met changes quite dramatically depending on what I am doing when those things are arising. Now, one of the things which was sort of Im- so implicit in, in the culture of the Buddha that it actually is never discussed is, is the hunger for connection. There's no... There's, there, the, the Pali word for relationship doesn't, does not exist. Okay, And so my understanding of that is that it doesn't exist because it was, it, it's like it was so embedded in their way of being with each other that they didn't actually need a specific word to describe it. And you, you fast forward to a modern and a postmodern society and we're in a very different situation where we're not in relationship with the land, we're not in relationship with our own bodies, we're not in relationship with villages or clans in the way that people were 2,600 years ago. And so fundamental in being a mammalian is the, is the hunger to connect with other warm, furry people. You know, and it's it's true that in a in a context like where you have a um, a primate, and you put them a young primate, and you put them in a place where they have it, all the food that they need, the exact temperature that they need, they have medicine that they need, they have the water that they need, they'll die, because what they also need is other primates. They need other warm, furry people to have skin contact, to to know that they're okay, to to be able to locate themselves by being in relationship with another. And so our hunger for contact, for social contact, is fundamental. And it's been a fascinating journey for me as a monastic, because as a monastic, so much of the culture of being a monastic is, is, to, is to have a kind of interesting relationship where we are both in a lot of contact and also very much alone. And the, the mixture between a lot of contact and an enormous amount of being alone has been like a magnifying glass on these basic hungers of hungering for contact and this deep and profound sense of 
of aloneness or loneliness that can emerge when it doesn't feel like that contact is present. Now, I want to switch gears, talk about a little bit where I live and the, the Garden of the Gods, what happens for me there, and then again come back. I live in Colorado Springs, which is a, quite a remarkable place for an alms mendicant Buddhist nun to live, <laughs> if I might say so myself. But I live 10 minutes a walk from the Garden of the Gods. Have any of you heard of the Garden of the Gods? One, two, a few. A few people have, yeah. The Garden of the Gods is um, a cluster of rock formations. These rocks run across the entire state of Colorado, but the Garden of the Gods is one particularly spectacular manifestation of them. And these rocks are 160 million years old, and for thousands and thousands of years, that particular manifestation of these rocks has been a sacred gathering place for First Nations people. And First Nations people who were at war with each other made an agreement that they would leave all weapons at least a day's walk away from the Garden of the Gods, and they would convene in complete harmony in the Garden. So these rocks are 10 minutes' walk from my doorstep. And so I spend time every day, rain or snow or Arctic freeze or blistering heat, I'm in the garden. And part of the reason why I go all the time is because what happens for me is is that when I am in contact with this place, I drop in to a, a space where I sense, I feel, I know awareness that pervades everything. And the other side of knowing that awareness pervades everything is knowing that love is the essence of everything. Unconditioned love is the essence of everything. And in that space of knowing awareness and love in that way, I don't experience problem. Because my experience of problem often is a resistance to things being as they are. And in something that is so vast and so embracing and so allowing, the resistance dissolves. And as the resistance dissolves, the thing seems to be like of such minute proportions, it's, it, it is no longer an issue. So all of these things arise, the hungers, the longings, the cravings, the wantings, the wantings this, the wantings that, the wanting company, the wanting more people, the wanting more support, the wanting the teams to be communicating more effectively with each other, the wanting, the wanting, the wanting, the wanting, as well as the incredible sense of dislocation of having gone from a place in England where I was in a community for 20 years, and then all of a sudden I'm on my own, to be in a situation where there was a lot of support, where everything was set up, and to be in a situation where I had to create everything from zero, you know. So it, it, it wasn't an easy transition. And yet there was something about these rocks and the mind state of dropping into awareness and all-pervasive love that constantly brought me back to a place of... There's no problem. There are no problems. These feelings arise, these hungers arise, these longings arise, these cravings arise. But in a space that is so huge and has so little resistance, they can be seen for what they are and responded to in a way that is appropriate. Having access to that I have often felt that a lot of our hungers is actually a mask of wanting to be in union with that. 
our hunger for food, our hunger for physical contact, our hunger for sex, our hunger for social acceptability, our hunger to be in right relationship is a hunger to return to essence and source, oftentimes masked. And so the problem then isn't so much that we have desires, but that our desires are not big enough. You know, we get focused on a computer or an apple, or we get focused on an individual relationship, or we get focused on having our needs met in a particular way. And what we're missing is is that these are strategic maneuvers of desire, masking a hunger to return to our essential being, our essential knowing that we belong in the web of life, that who and what we are made out of is awareness and love itself. And so for myself, my path has not been about cutting across desire and saying if it's something that I desire, then I need to push it away but to dropping into desire itself and being incinerated by it until what emerges is this vast open field that I can relax into. Now, this is not very Theravadan. (laughs) And I apologize. If I need to apologize, I will apologize. But I have found it to be profoundly um, clarifying. And the clarification is, is that I don't need to disown my desires. I need to be in right relationship with them, but I don't need to disown them. The desires themselves is not actually the path which is the problem. It's the way that I'm relating to them. All of them. So the first noble truth is is that there is dukkha. And, you know, it's probably a poor translation to say that it's suffering. Dukkha is suffering. Maybe a a, a more accurate or a more dialed-in translation would be to say all-pervasive unsatisfactoriness. Okay? And so all-pervasive unsatisfactoriness is about the fact that no matter how much we get what we want, it still doesn't satisfy And it doesn't satisfy because it actually hasn't solved the basic problem. Which is the basic problem is the sense that we feel fundamentally insufficient and incomplete the way we are. And that we think that if we get something that is outside, that it's going to fill up this crevasse that's inside, that's 10,000 feet deep and 10,000 miles wide, and it doesn't work that way. And so the all-pervasive nature of suffering tends to have the impact of making it so that we are constantly looking for things outside to grab and to pull in, assuming that if we pull in pleasure into the center of our mandala and dissolve into that, that that is the place where we are going to feel reunited with what we felt we lost. And check it out. Has that worked? Does that work? Has that ever worked? And yet there's something in desire which takes us very close, very, very, very close to what actually does allow us to shift gears and come back into that place of clarity. And so it's a razor's edge to stay with desire and not tip into the place where we're moving into obsession, where we're moving into addiction, where we're moving into the wrong relationship. 
but to hold that desire so that we are constantly seeing what is the bigger thing that we feel that we have lost and how do we use that hunger and that craving to come closer to who we are. To what we are when everything else falls away. There's a a chiropractor in town, and she does spinal network analysis, and she's been offering me treatments, which is just a totally remarkable gift. And I'm beginning to get a feeling of what it's like to actually feel my breath moving through my spine. And today, on the airplane coming over, I was doing some head rolls and just totally blissed out. I've never blissed out doing head rolls before, but I was on the plane. And to feel the way the breath and the life force moves through the different rotations of the head and to see the way all of these things connect, I was really surprised by... Normally, when I travel, I I mean, it's just like, it's so pathetic. I can be traveling for an hour and it takes me like two hours to recover. You know, I, I just, I don't, I, I don't travel very well. But being able to connect the breath and the life force while I was in the plane, my body was relaxing and being energized rather than the tightness of the, of the, of the seating and the, and the poor quality of the air and the, you know, all of the, the radiation from being up in high altitude. And, you know, my, my body just kind of, I don't, it just is not happy, not happy. But to, to, to bring the breath and awareness and to work with it directly had a noticeable impact on my capacity to weather the traveling and to come out of it in a way where I felt, I felt, I felt okay, you know. I didn't feel wiped out. One of the things which I realize... Um, has been a part of the, of the conditioning that, I've, that I'm relearning, is, is, is re-inhabiting my own body. For somehow, for many reasons, some of them are ancestral, some of them are what I heard in the teaching, some of them are the culture. There was the sense that if we are not in our body, that's the path to freedom that somehow our body is an obstacle, that it actually is something that we need to... to it, that our body holds these desires, these, it holds all these desires and all these cravings, and if we, and if we... and oh my goodness, and what happens? And there's this kind of panic that if we drop into our body, we're going to be inundated with all this stuff, and it's going to take us to hell. And the, for me, it's been the opposite, that it's been through dropping into my body. It's through allowing myself to feel what I feel and the cravings and the longings and the hungers that I have that gives me the capacity to open up into the place where I know who I am. And who I am is not by grabbing hold. I know who I am by letting go. Is any of this making any sense? <laughs> I can't tell. <laughs> I can't tell. So craving has in it two things. Craving is, has in it the capacity to take us to more craving. Craving has in it the capacity for us to have a profound understanding and realization of the end of craving. The choice is in the moment how we are relating 
It's not in what we are craving. So I live in Colorado. It's 6,300 feet. And the trees only are just beginning to come into leaf. So I come here, and it's like you've got green everywhere. And not only do you have got green, you've got flowers, and their colors are pink, and they're blue, and they're white, and they're yellow. And there's this sense of, like, you know... And I can watch these incredible bubbles, you know, the bubbles of delight, the bubbles of joy, the bubbles of sensuality, of the pleasure of seeing all of this fertility and life force blooming in front of me. And the contrast from, you know, brown earth and barren trees to, you know, in a couple hours, I'm in a completely different landscape. And so if there's a sense that the color or the trees or the flowers are going to be the thing that is going to fill up this empty space, then I'm in a relationship of dependency that I have to have that. If I slam it and say, it's all impermanent, it's going to die anyway, (laughs) then I cut off something inside of myself that's bubbling. But I can watch the bubbles. I can watch the effervescence. I can see the joy. I can see the delight and enjoy it without absorbing into it and making that who I am. And it's lovely to be able to enjoy the green and the flowers. You know, it's really lovely. One of the, the, there was a man on the, on the, a couple on the, in the air, in the airplane, and he had a teddy bear strapped to his luggage. And normally, you know, men in their 70s don't have teddy bears attached to their luggage. So I thought, well, you know, perfect. I can ask him um, about his teddy. And his wife, or I think it was his wife, ch- chimed in immediately. It's for the grandson, you know. It's like automatically, you know, protect the space. This guy is not, you know, he's not an early Alzheimer's candidate. He's actually quite okay. But it's like, you know, he's got a teddy strapped to his luggage. Isn't that wonderful? You know. So there's this kind of like spontaneousness of being able to engage and have fun and play and enjoy. Something simple, like somebody sitting on the airplane with a teddy bear on his luggage. As a monastic, I've lived my life held within a container of very clearly defined precepts. And that for me has been tremendously valuable in being able to see edges of where the mind goes and to pull back when I'm around an edge that's not going to be leading to skillfulness. In a context as living as lay people, the precept boundary is not so clearly defined which means that oftentimes people have a rope that's long enough they can hang themselves with it. And it isn't so much the the fact that you... It's what our mind does with choice when these cravings that are arising that is an incredibly instructive thing to watch because craving can justify just about anything. You know, and feel self-righteous and completely um, vindicated for doing so. And it's bullshit. <laughs> and so when we don't have any boundary that gives any kind of parameters to measure whether we're actually in integrity or we're in bullshit, then we have a problem how to actually do this. How do we navigate this territory? 
How do you how do you keep the razor's edge with desire when there's enough rope to hang yourself by? And for me, it has coming back again and again and again to what's actually happening now and how am I relating to it and what's going on in my body. That has been my path. And if I feel gripped or caught by something, it has a very, very different feeling to it than when I'm relaxed and open and spacious around it. So I don't need to shame myself if I feel caught, but I don't need to follow it either. You know? I can see it, I can watch it, I can notice the impact. And then I go to the rocks and see what happens. When I hold it in this vast, open, huge space where there isn't anything that's missing, there isn't a sense of lack, and there isn't a sense of anything being wrong. Something is big enough, wide enough, spacious enough, embracing enough that whatever is there is okay. And that's one of the things I love about these rocks. You know, I have thrown all kinds of shit their way and they don't move. (laughs) They just don't move. They don't get agitated. They don't flap. And I experience them as embracing. They, they, They receive me. So where are your rocks? Where is your garden of the God? Where do you go to be able to remember who you are? What you are, what you are made of when everything falls away. Where do you go to open up the spectrum so that whatever is going on is okay? What is that for you? How do you access that? It's important to know, or at least it's important to ask. If you don't know, it's important to ask, where is that? Because when there is a sense of being able to open up to something that is vast and open and spacious and embracing and allowing, then all of this comes into rest. Nothing is out of order. There are no things that shouldn't be there. And what a difference it makes to live when there are no things that shouldn't be there. What it feels like in my own body, in my own skin, in the way that I walk on the ground, in the way that I melt into the rocks, in the way that I can be just so happy to see a bird or a flower or a smile. So the Buddha talked about dukkha as being something that was pervading everything. He talked about desire as the cause of dukkha. And this desire is grasping and clinging. The identification, the sinking our teeth into it, it's the leaning forward into something. And he talked about the cessation of dukkha. 
And right precisely where dukkha arises, that's exactly where it ends. And then he talked about a path, an eightfold path that supports the conditions that give rise to the mind being able to see clearly what's going on and make the right choices. So when craving arises, we need to be able to notice where is it coming from. And respond. When you're hungry, you need to eat. When you're not feeling safe, sometimes you need to have more support. when you're longing to connect in an intimate way that's genuine and those longings need to be known. And sometimes in knowing them, it allows us to shift gears and Stop seeing ourselves as being a separate being trying to find fulfillment from something that's outside of ourselves. To being able to soften that sense of who we take ourselves to be and where we locate ourselves. And as that softens, to notice that the things that we have desired the most are often the things that we are made out of. So perhaps that's enough for this evening in terms of my offering a reflection. And we can change context and have a a conversation, a discussion, time for questions. And again, I just would like to encourage that when I offer a reflection in this way, my intention is not for you to believe a word that I say but to use this as an opportunity to drop in, to feel your own body, your own somatic responsiveness to what you hear, to be in complete dialogue with what it is that you hear so that you can feel resonances and dissonances and work with that rather than just the words and the concepts that you hear. Okay? Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.